Welcome to another episode of Fear Not, the podcast that tells us why we're afraid of all the wrong things and oblivious to what can actually kill us. Trending fears this week, fear socialists, and not just Bernie. The Dominican Republic, it's mysteriously killing people, but only Americans. Coffee's bad. Wait, it's good. Barry? Mrs. Iron Man, Gwyneth Paltrow, is an effing extortionist. Barry's fear of the week, actually his fear of the decade, and of course our regular feature, Fear Florida. That and so much more coming up on Fear Not. Today is gonna be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me the way I'm feeling. Gonna be a good day. A good day. Welcome back to Fear Not. I'm Alonzo Bowden, here with the world's foremost expert on fear, Dr. Barry Glasner. And I'm here with one of the funniest people I know, Alonzo Bowden. Barry wrote the book on fear. His international bestseller, The Culture of Fear, is available on Amazon. And you can hear Alonzo be funny on the NPR news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And for his tour schedule, check out his website at alonzobowden.com. And watch out for Alonzo's stand-up special, Heavy Lightweight, dropping in August on Amazon prime i think that's probably enough shameless plugs yeah i think we've covered that we're on twitter at fear not official or email us at fear not official at gmail.com send us your questions send us your fears and while you're there subscribe so you know when our episodes post let's get this thing started okay here we go headline number one listeners beware this headline has a dirty word in it Socialism. Right. And remember, Alonzo, on last week's podcast, Trump was calling all the Democrats socialists and communists? Yeah. This headline, Be afraid the next Democratic president will come out of a zombie army of anti-capitalists. The socialists are coming. Well, I watch The Walking Dead, so if a zombie army shows up, I'm ready. But a socialist? I got nothing. Ever since Bernie Sanders announced that he was a Democratic socialist, Socialism has been all the rage, and by rage, I mean Republicans are raging about it. America will never be a socialist country is now part of Trump's stump speeches. Trump might even be right on this. Did I actually say that out loud? I can't believe it. In a survey published in May, only 29% of Americans consider socialism compatible with American values. But on the other hand, in another poll, Half of all Americans believe socialism is a way to make things fairer for working people. The Democratic base seems to be saying, we like the ideas, just please don't use the word socialism. The problem starts here with what they mean by socialism. Even scholars who study socialism, like historians and sociologists, struggle with the definition. I don't think definitions are the problem. There was a pollster who said, and I fully agree with this, people don't vote on definitions. They vote on their visceral reaction to what they think the term means. People hear socialism and they think it's what's not working in France, or worse, it's one step from communism and Marx and Lenin are at the door. We all know how that worked out. Maybe. But let, let's look at some facts here. In a Gallup poll last year that asked both Democrats and Republicans what socialism means, the answers were all over the map. The most common response at 23% was no opinion or vague definitions like equal standing for everybody. That's pretty broad, and frankly, that sounds like democracy. 
The second most common answer at 17% was government ownership or control, but it also describes things like Social Security and Medicare, which most people considered just American at this point. Then there were the 6% of people who thought socialism meant talking to people or being social or social media. Those are nice sentiments, but they're not quite what the term socialism means. Yeah, and this is what the pollster was saying, and this is why I agree with it, because people don't know exactly what it is, but their visceral reaction is negative. People think of socialism as bad, and the minute they hear it, they're like, this is America, we're not socialists. Well, let me school everybody just a little bit on what socialism is supposed to mean. Quote, the public control or ownership of production and distribution of all goods and services. Now, that may sound scary, but listen to this quote from Harry Truman back in 1952. Socialism is what they called Social Security. Socialism is what they called farm price supports. Socialism is what they called bank deposit insurance. Socialism is what they called the growth of free and independent labor. Socialism is their name for almost everything that helps all of the people. Now, Alonzo, if that quote sounds familiar, I can't quite do his accent, but it's because Bernie Sanders uses that quote in his stump speeches. And how do you think that sounds to young voters? I think it sounds great. I think young voters like Bernie. And what, what the quote is saying is that every one of these programs, which has worked out and helped people, was initially demonized. That makes Bernie a democratic socialist. Now, what does that mean? Here's how Bernie defines democratic socialism. What I believe is that the American people deserve freedom, true freedom. Freedom is an often used word, but it is time that we took a hard look at what that word actually means. Ask yourself, what does it really mean to be free. Are you truly free if you are unable to go to a doctor when you are sick? While the Bill of Rights protects us from the tyranny of an oppressive government, many in the establishment would like the American people to submit to the tyranny of oligarchs, multinational corporations, Wall Street banks, and billionaires. It is time, and in fact, time long overdue for the American people to stand up and fight for their right to freedom, human dignity, and security. Under that definition, Bernie's definition, all of the social programs of the past 90 years since the Great Depression, food stamps, Medicare, Social Security, even the Bush era bank bailout after the Great Recession, and Obamacare, they're all socialist. You know what else is socialist if he really did it? Trump, who said he's going to take money from the tariffs he's charging and distribute that money, redistribute that money to farmers. Now, anything with the word public attached, like public schools, public colleges, public parks, public works projects, even infrastructure, they're all socialism. I kind of like what he's doing here because you're taking something that people think is, oh, it's terrible socialism, and he's saying, well, the government provides, if we define socialism as being something being provided by the government, look at all these good things the government provides, like public schools and public parks and public infrastructure and so on and so forth. So maybe 
socialism in that sense isn't so bad. We're still a democracy, but we have these programs that are, quote, socialism. Yeah, here, consider some facts like that. With the exception of universal health care, nobody running for president is talking about a government takeover of anything that is not already public. So right off the bat, none of them fit the definition of socialism, where all goods and services are publicly held. Trump, as we said in the last week's podcast, he might try to cast them that way, but it's just not the case. And if you use Bernie's definition of democratic socialism, you can see why so many young people who have no recollection of the fall of the Soviet Union, why they're listening, why they're eating it up, why they like it. And in fact, that Gallup survey released in May found that while 51% of Americans believe that socialism would be a bad thing for the country, 43% consider it a good thing. 43%, that's a lot of people. Frank Luntz, a longtime Republican strategist who's kind of the, the, the guru in those, in those quarters, he said this, quote, more and more people believe that the wealthy have rigged the system and they want to unrig it. That makes more voters open to a disruptive figure like Trump and to candidates who promise a fairer deal through socialism. I think the system is rigged toward the rich. The rich get richer. The wealthy keep their wealth. And even even those who said, well, Trump's going to upset the apple cart, Trump's going to change things, now that they see his big signature tax cut didn't help them at all. It only helped the super wealthy. So I could see where people would be open to these socialist ideas. But the truth is, particularly for millennials, right, the first generation that's coming in and they're saying won't do as well or may not do as well as their parents, which, of course, is the American dream and are looking at student debt and and so many other problems, health care, and they're going to be looking at caring for older people like there's not enough of them to take care of all the baby boomers as the baby boomers age out and get sick. So to them, socialism is not a dirty word. When you look at what socialism means in any of the many real senses of that term, take the highway system. <laughs> That's socialism, right? Uh, you know, you wouldn't have roads if it weren't for public money, for the public good, for things that people need. So whenever you take it like that and just strip the word out, many, many Americans support what the program would be. Yeah, the government's job is to help people. And helping people and providing services costs money. That's not evil. But here's the hypocrisy. Trump himself advocates and maybe even does a kind of socialism, right? When he talks about taking all this money from the tariffs that he's imposing on other countries and redistributing it, that horrible word, to farmers, right? But that's a socialist program. Let's get real. And when he goes after people as socialists and just talks about how all the Democrats are socialists, that's just a political ploy. That's just fear-mongering. So if the Democrats do it, it's socialism. But if he does it, he's helping the people. So, Barry, in the end, socialism, fear or fear not? Fear not the real thing. And fear, if you're going to fear anything, people who are throwing this term around to scare people. Headline two. I've been waiting to do this story since I started reading these headlines. Several friends and listeners of this podcast asked me about this one. U.S. tourists are mysteriously dying in the Dominican Republic. 
All right, let's talk about the growing concern and a growing mystery in the Dominican Republic. This island paradise is facing greater scrutiny as more Americans die under mysterious circumstances. The latest person to come forward is Annette Weddington, mother of Bronx resident Terrence Richmond. He was hiking and then he fell and had a heart attack. This is what they told me. And I did not buy that because I knew that he was healthy. Suddenly, the DR is a dangerous place with all kinds of mysterious deaths that are eerily similar. News reports wonder about cyanide poisoning, pesticides, Legionnaire's disease, and pure grain alcohol poisoning from bootleg minibar booze. Okay, Barry, here's a backstory. Seven U.S. tourists died in the Dominican Republic in succession over one month from May 25th through June 27th. Now, this is in addition to six other tourist deaths in the past 12 months. The deaths that kicked this whole story off were a couple, 49-year-old Cynthia Day and 63-year-old Edward Holmes. They were found dead in their hotel room by housekeeping. Both had internal bleeding and fluid on their lungs. On the surface, it seemed kind of fishy. The seventh and latest death, as of this recording, was June 27th. 46-year-old Khalid Atkins was pulled off a plane as he headed back to Denver because he was too sick to travel. He died three days later of kidney failure. Wow, that sounds pretty serious, Lonzo. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. Well, there's more. Ten days before that, 56-year-old Vittorio Caruso died after drinking something, but the cause of death is still unknown. And four days before that, a 55-year-old guy from New Jersey, Joseph Allen, was complaining to his friends about overheating at the pool, so he left to take a shower and lie down. The next day, he was found dead. Cause of death still to be determined. One of his family members was quoted as saying, healthy people seem to be having heart attacks out of the blue. Had I known that, I'd have fought tooth and nail to have his remains brought back here and have an American autopsy done. Yeah, to be honest, the DR is not known for their forensics units. It's a small island country whose tourist industry has boomed only recently, and lots of all-inclusive luxury eat-and-drink-fest hotel complexes that depend on people having a great time are there. What resort needs bad PR? No resort needs bad PR. And so it's no wonder that some people smell a cover-up here. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. I mean, there have been calls for investigations, cancellation of tours, members of Congress calling for the State Department to change its travel advisory for the country. The New York Times quoted a toxicologist from John Hopkins who theorized these people might have been victims of alcohol poisoning. Fox News had an expert on who said it might be a colorless, odorless intoxicant. You know, each of these stories are tragic, but I don't know. Do these things just happen? Yeah, but what happens when these stories come out one right after another like this is that other unrelated stories start coming out of the woodwork. For example, about the same time as all of these deaths, a group of Oklahoma high school students on a grad trip reported that while they were staying at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Putacana, they became violently ill after eating at a Japanese restaurant. It seems like they're all related somehow, right? And then when you hear the next one, it just all seems to fall into line. So here's some additional background. As reported by Daniel Engbird and Slate, this whole thing was put into motion in March when an American couple on vacation, quote, mysteriously disappeared. Two weeks later, they were found dead. Apparently, they drove their car off the road on the way to the airport. 
Then, and this is what I really think got the conspiracy theories going. You may remember this story, Alonzo, because the pictures were truly horrific. At the end of May, a woman named Tammy Lawrence Daly went viral on Facebook with a posting about how she was beaten and possibly raped at a high-end Dominican resort by a staff member and then left to die in a crawl space deep in the bowels of the hotel. She posted this grotesque picture of her face, beaten and swollen. The validity of her story is in question by the hotel and by the DR police who say there are a lot of gaps in it. But that's not what's important here. What's important is that her story went viral and was everywhere. Then one day later, that couple we told you about earlier, the ones with internal bleeding and fluid on their lungs, they died. With those three stories in quick succession, the couple who drove off the road, the woman who was beaten, and the couple who died in their room, the press had been having a feeding frenzy. What's the old saying? If it bleeds, it leads, right? Sadly, these people are dying, and, and they, it's easy to attach these stories and scare people, right? I mean, all this fear-mongering creates hysteria that hampers investigations because people come out of the woodwork with false leads. So that explains why the story caught fire and the effects of the frenzy. But it doesn't tell us if this is something to fear or fear not. That's right. And to do that, what we need to do is look at a few more statistics, namely how many people die while traveling abroad every year, and in particular to the Dominican Republic. According to Engber from Slate, there's scant research on the subjects of deaths abroad he didn't find any American studies, but he did find three studies from other countries, one from Finland, one from Scotland, and one from Australia. The number of deaths of travelers from those three countries is measured by living humans leaving the country and corpses coming back ranged from 0.018% of Finns to 0.008% of Australians. So let's take a number in the middle in which case it would be normal or expected that 0.012% of tourists going to the Dominican Republic would die on their trip of both natural and unnatural causes. So do the math. 0.012% of the 2.7 million Americans who go to the DR, and drum roll please, 324 dead tourists per year, that's 27 per month, as compared to the 12 we know about over the past year. So even if the number of people dying in the DR this year were to double or triple, it would still be well below what we should expect. Okay, I want to say that I'm glad to hear mathematically the DR is safe because I actually work on cruise ships and they stop there. On occasions. Well, May and June were not good months for the DR, that's for sure, when it comes to public relations. But is it something to fear? What are you going to say, Barry? Fear or fear not? Fear not. I'll let them know it's safe to get off the ship. And I just booked my flight. Headline three. Now, this fear is a common one, and it comes from a caller named Leah. Let's listen. Hey Alonzo and Barry, I really love your podcast and I listen to it every week. It has me thinking a lot about whether or not my own fears are legit. I saw something on Twitter the other day that had me freaked out. I'm a huge coffee drinker and I drink it all day every day and it said that too much is bad for you. Please tell me this isn't true. 
Okay, she doesn't have to worry because too much coffee, that's impossible. Isn't it, Barry? There's no such thing as too much coffee. Well, coffee is serious business. And people don't like it when reports come out that make them fear their coffee addiction. CNN covered the story, and their article started off like this. Is coffee safe or risky for your heart? Two recent studies appear to contradict each other on this question, which often leaves coffee lovers scratching their heads. Definitely sounds confusing. Fears associated with coffee have been around for a long, long time. I mean, uh, listen, they told me coffee was going to stunt my growth. Didn't exactly happen. Now, folks have a reason to be afraid, though. We see these articles all the time. Coffee causes insomnia, raises blood pressure, increases cholesterol, all kind of bad stuff. That sounds terrifying, Alonzo, because heart disease is the number one killer of humans. So what do you think about that? Have uh, we all been poisoning ourselves with coffee our whole lives? I don't think so. Starbucks doesn't think so, and they wouldn't lie to me. Let's get to the facts. A whole lot of people drink coffee. You don't have to look past the corner Starbucks to see that it's a booming business. And according to the National Coffee Association, which is a coffee trade industry group, 83% of Americans over the age of 18 drink coffee. Now, that means there are roughly 200 million coffee drinkers in the U.S. alone, and that's the highest level since 2012. And by the way, that doesn't include all the kids who drink frappuccinos after school, whether they should or not. About two-thirds of the U.S. population drink coffee every day. And here's a little fun fact. Guess what the average American spends on coffee every year? Coffee drinkers or everybody? Everybody. Doing some math in my head. Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to go with about 800 bucks. $1,100. And like many things that we spend money on, including alcohol, sugar, stuff like that, there's a long history of medical flip-flopping on the health risks and the benefits of consuming coffee. Here's a little history. Coffee really started being popular back in the 1500s when coffee houses opened in Arabia. Evidently, even way back then, coffee was bad for you. They thought it led to illegal sex and gambling. Okay, so what part of that would be bad for you? Well, in the 500 years since those first coffee houses opened, coffee's been popular for the jolt it gives us, but most of the bad reputation it's gotten was anecdotal, not scientific, until the late 20th century when all that changed. Here's just one example. A 1973 study in the New England Journal of Medicine of more than 12,000 patients found that drinking one to five cups of coffee a day increased the risk of heart attacks by 60%. Six or more cups a day doubled that risk to 120%. And as recently as 2001, a study found a 20% increase in the risk of urinary tract cancer risk for coffee drinkers. But other studies started finding benefits to coffee drinking. One study showed that drinking two cups of black coffee a day could reduce the risk of cancer by 43%. And those findings were replicated by two other studies. So the trick is to just drink one really big cup of coffee a day. Is there anything bigger than a venti? <laughs> and then some places will outlaw the big ones, right? Like they've been trying to do for soda. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I, I'm not sure that's going to that's gonna cut it. But let's turn to these two new contradictory studies. Both studies are based on coffee drinkers in the UK. One was a brand new study and one was based on metadata from UK hospital records that span decades. So the first one was presented to the British Cardiovascular Society and that one found that drinking as much as five cups of coffee a day was no worse on your arteries than drinking less than a cup. It also found that people who drank as much as 25 cups a day we're no more likely to experience a hardening of the arteries than someone drinking less than a cup. If you're drinking 25 or more cups a day, 
you need something else to do. Develop a hobby. Pick up a book. Who's got time to drink 25 cups of coffee a day? Yeah, basically. The other study was done in Australia. It was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. That one looked at the records of about 350,000 adults in the UK and found that there is a sweet spot where coffee drinking is actually good for you. Unlike that study I mentioned from 1973, the one that said coffee increases your chances of heart disease, this study shows that those who drink one to five cups a day have lower cardiovascular disease rates than people who drink no coffee at all by about 11%. But people who drank six cups of coffee or more they had a 22% greater chance of getting the disease. Okay, so it's like that movie Speed, right, where Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves, they had to keep the bus at an exact speed <laughs> or else it would blow up. So if you're between one and five cups, you're cool. If you go over five cups, your heart's going to blow up. And the statistical difference when drinking more than five cups is not really all that great. So it turns out that coffee might be good for you after all. In fact... Based on other recent studies, a cup or more of Joe has quite a few benefits, like reducing the risk of cancer and heart disease. But coffee also contains beneficial antioxidants that have been associated with longevity. And as it turns out, they think some intake of caffeine may actually reduce the risk of obesity. There have been other studies that say coffee also reduces your risk of type 2 diabetes and even Parkinson's. It also increases your short-term focus and endurance during exercise, something I think some of us knew anyway. But there does seem to be an upper limit to how much coffee can help out, and that limit seems to be five cups a day. That's a lot of coffee, I think. And I'm a coffee drinker, but five cups a day, see, I have two or three is good. Two in the morning, one in the afternoon, that'll keep me going. But if you, if you can have up to five, then I guess I'm okay. So here's my question. What's going on? What's the science? There could be a whole number of reasons why these studies find different things. But one reason is probably, almost certainly, because we know this, some of the earlier studies didn't take into account that heavy coffee drinkers also tended to smoke and be less physically active. Remember, this is the 1970s that we're talking about when people did a whole lot of, of smoking, a lot more than they do now. And, of course, if you're putting all kinds of sweeteners and dairy products and additives in, you might be negating the positive benefits of a good cup of black coffee or espresso. Here's the question. Coffee, fear or fear not? Well, if you have high blood pressure or you're someone who doesn't metabolize caffeine very well, you should consult your doctor. Otherwise, drink up and fear not. Down in Florida, we welcome you to the Sunshine State. You know what that music means, Alonzo? It's time for Fear Florida, and this week we have one hell of a story. The headline reads, Florida man pleasured himself in motel room window while watching other guests pass by. He moseyed up to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, but it still counts. Wait, people are allowed to leave Florida? I thought that was against the law. Nope, and here's the story. According to Newsweek, police were called to a motel room in the seaside village of Dennisport, Massachusetts, after guests were complaining of a man's lewd behavior. Evidently, they saw a naked man standing up against the window of his room, pleasuring himself. So the guy leaves Florida, 
right, where you can look out the window all year long. There's women walking by in thong bikinis. He goes to peep on people in Cape Cod. (laughs) Well, when the police arrived, the 30-year-old man identified himself through the door as Travis Wyneth, a Florida native. No surprise there. Being a good Florida man and not wanting the story to end in an easy arrest, Travis refused to open the door, so officers broke into the room and used a stun gun on him. Good for him in maintaining the Florida tradition and a stun (laughs) gun being involved. Yeah, and he was arrested, but he pled not guilty to the charges. Uh, What do you think his defense was? I cannot imagine. They, They actually caught you in a window with people looking at you. Maybe he thought uh, it was one-way glass. Maybe he took the no-tell, motel (laughs) sign seriously. Or you know what his defense was probably? Your Honor, I'm from Florida. I think that's the defense. you just like, Your Honor, I'm from Florida. And the judge is like, we understand. Just just go home. I can't top that. But what he actually said was, I may have accidentally left the blinds of my room open. Travis, by the way, is currently awaiting trial. And they accidentally left the bars on the jail <laughs> closed. Fear Florida. Headline number four, Gwyneth Paltrow and her lifestyle brand Goop are back in the news. Page six of the New York Post reports, quote, there is fury at Gwyneth Paltrow over her wellness summit. An attendee called her an effing extortionist. That's Iron Man's wife they're trashing. Barry, listen, that's not the worst people have said about Gwyneth Paltrow and the snake oil stuff she's pawned off on the public over the past decade. For those who don't know about Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow started it as a weekly email newsletter in 2008. The newsletter was full of new age advice and fads about policing your thoughts and eliminating white foods from your diet. Her slogan was nourish the inner aspect. The hell does that mean? Now, flash forward 11 years, Goop is a multi-million dollar lifestyle brand valued at over 250 million. In media, it's a print magazine, a podcast, and a docuseries soon to premiere on Netflix. But mostly, Goop makes and sells a lot of stuff that's supposed to help you look and feel great. As great as, uh, oh, I don't know, Gwyneth Paltrow. I think it's good to see that she was able to pick herself up after uh, winning the Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. Actually, this is going so well, she gave up acting. She's gooping full-time. Goop has come up with a ton of controversy. Most of it's aimed at Paltrow herself over some pretty outrageous claims that she and her band of lifestyle gurus have espoused about the health benefits of the things that Goop sells. It seems like old Gwyneth is a master fearmonger. But first, let me say, I've never met Gwyneth Paltrow, but she seems like a nice lady. Uh, this isn't about her personally, as far as I'm concerned. Many fearmongers are nice people who've convinced themselves that they're doing the public some good. But I have nieces and goddaughters in the Goop demographic, so I feel an obligation to check into what Gwyneth is selling, or trying to sell. Our crack research staff curated a list of just a few of the controversial ideas that Miss Paltrow is selling, usually some kind of beauty or health issue that needs fixing. And then what she does is she sells a cure. So here, here goes. Let me go through some of these. Chemicals in sunscreen, particularly oxybenzone, are causing signs of aging and increased risk of cancer, and chemicals in tampons are causing higher risk of cancer. Oxidative stress, 
metabolic changes and disrupting your endocrine system. And guess what the fix is? $60 sunscreen and organic tampons. This is truly the classic snake oil, right? Do you have this wrong with you? Do you have this wrong with you? I got the cure. I mean, it's like these commercials for men. They have the testosterone thing. And at the end of any of these, they always say, this product not meant to cure any disease. Wait a minute. You just told me it would. Here's another great one of hers. Colon cleansing is imperative to get rid of waste that is stuck, which means, translation, it's time for coffee enema. Yeah, the colon cleansing, that's, that's always a hustle. There's been meat in your colon for the last 20 or 30 years. I'm a little reluctant to bring up this next one, but here goes. Underwire bras caused breast cancer. Finally, we know what causes breast cancer, and we know how to treat it. Right? What she wants you to do is buy her wire-free bras. They're only $467 for the silk triangle bra. That seems pretty excessive to me, but what do I know? I don't buy silk bras. Well, I bet you didn't know this. The uterus needs tightening. And for that, you're supposed to insert jade eggs into your vagina because they recharge in the moonlight. And that's a $66 vaginal egg that she sells. I know some women that have bought rechargeable vaginal eggs, but it's a whole different thing. Now, they enjoy them, and they may enjoy them in the <laughs> moonlight, but I don't know if it's tightening up any uteruses. They do enjoy them. The most controversial of all the things that she's promoting is something called vaginal steaming, which she says is a must to balance your hormones, tighten muscle tone, and assure cleanliness and, of course, it'll improve your sex life. Four years ago, Goop said this about a spa in West Los Angeles. The real golden ticket here is the Mugworth V-Steam. You sit on what is essentially a mini throne, and a combination of infrared and Mugworth steam treats you to an energetic release. So evidently, it used to say instead of just that, that it balances female hormone levels. But that part's no longer on the site and maybe for good medical reasons. But the reason I decided that we should focus on this item of hers is because four years after the Goop article went viral, vaginal steaming is still in the news. Just last week, Cosmo published an article entitled, Why Are People Still Steaming Their Vaginas? And when will this insanity end? It's all fun and games until someone gets second-degree burn jaw. Now, this is happening despite literally dozens of articles, many by well-respected medical professionals, warning women that V-sting can burn them and the health benefits are non-existent. Barry, I got to be honest with you. Once you read the headline, Why Are People Still Steaming Their Vaginas? I didn't hear a word you said after that because that might be the greatest headline to an article I've ever heard. <laughs> This, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. You're going to steam clean your vagina? No, you steam clean the engine in your car, all right? You, you steam clean the siding on your house. You don't steam clean your vagina. There's more damage from, from this because there's the shaming that this does about women and their private parts, making them feel like uh, they need this kind of treatment just to be a good partner. Ladies, if you're listening non-steam vagina is very good. Don't worry about it. No man is ever going to be, hey, has that thing been steamed? Oh, no thanks. No thanks. No, it's nice of you to offer, but until you steam it, I'll pass. You will never hear that in your life. Let's look at the fear-mongering part of this, though. Why does Goop exist? 
Is it to spread good news to women about health and beauty? No, it's to sell stuff. And what's the best way to sell this kind of stuff? The answer to that question is my fear-busting tip of the week. When people try to sell you something by means of FOMO, fear of missing out, watch out. FOMO is a common sales technique, and it is nothing other than fear-mongering. So, Ms. Paltrow spoke at Harvard Business School last year about all the negative publicity that she and Goop got for making these ridiculous claims. Now, you might think that it would hurt sales, all that bad noise. But actually, as an article in the New York Times about the effect of this bad press put it, quote, each of these pronouncements set off a series of blog posts and articles and tweets that link directly to the Goop site driving up traffic. Paltrow called this a cultural firestorm, and she went on to say, I can monetize those eyeballs. It's never clickbait, she told this class. Quote, it's a cultural firestorm when it's about a woman's vagina. Now, according to the New York Times article, the room was silent when she said that, and she then cupped her hands around her mouth and yelled, vagina, 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 as if she were yodeling. That drives traffic. It does drive traffic to your website, and she's making money off of it. Definitely making a lot of money off of it. And at the same time, the criticism of Paltrow's website has been constant. A nonprofit group called Truth in Advertising has claimed that the website made more than 50 illegal and deceptive health claims. Paltrow claims that Goop is just, quote, giving information and not advice. So that makes Goop, you know, kind of like the TMZ of lifestyle brands. They don't live under the same journalistic requirements of, say, a CNN or a New York Times. The CFO of Goop said, quote, Goop provides a forum for practitioners to present their views and experiences with various products like the Jade Egg. The law, though, sometimes views statements like this as advertising claims, which are subject to various legal requirements. Mm, yeah, yeah, right. You know what's really funny about this? Even the title Goop, it sounds like one of those old snake oil salesmen with the tent that goes down. Yeah, try this Goop, see? This Goop will fix what's wrong with you. You got bad skin? You need some Goop. You got a loose vagina? You need some Goop. Your hair falling out? You need some Goop. Come get the Goop. <laughs> but look, Let's talk about the real damage done to people who are following Goop's advice. Or, uh, sorry, I mean information. What's, what is it? What's the damage? None. Unless they burn or otherwise injure themselves with one of their products, the real damage is people having been separated from their hard-earned cash. Well, she's conning people with too much money, which I have no problem with. The only problem with this is this sort of uh, trickle-down effect, right? So the people who live in this celebrity worship, who don't have money to just throw away on $460 bras. This is a problem with the internet. A con like this gets bigger and more people read about it and people don't read the fact checker. So Barry, fear or fear not, do we fear the goop? Well, certainly fear not Gwyneth P, but don't fall for FOMO and pseudoscience. This is the segment I dread every week, Barry's Fear of the Week. But this time, it's one Barry's been talking about on his roadshow for a while. So uh, hit it, Dr. B. Just about everywhere I speak, the first question people ask me goes something like this. There must be some things you can't debunk. What do you fear the most? And my answer has been the same every time, drunk drivers. Years ago, 
I taught comedy traffic school, and drunk driving was one of the things we talked about and how dangerous it was to be on the road in those hours when the bars closed. On average, 30 people in the U.S. die every day in motor vehicle accidents involving drunk drivers. That's one every 50 minutes, about 11,000 deaths a year and 290,000 injuries. But if you're someone who cares about money more than people, here's an equally fear-worthy number. Alcohol-related crashes cost over $44 billion every year, with a B. But now, Alonzo, here's the good news. Unlike the bogus dangers that fearmongers promote and we talk about on this podcast all the time, not only is this one real, but we can do something about it. In fact, everybody listening to this podcast can do something to stop this carnage. And I don't just mean designating a driver or taking Lyft or Uber if you're drinking. Those are good. Those are crucial, in fact. But what I mean is checking to see if the state where you live is protecting you. Does your state have an ignition interlock program, for instance? These are laws that require that a person arrested or convicted of drunk driving have a breathalyzer device installed on their car. If they can't pass the breathalyzer test, then they can't unlock the ignition. 28 states and D.C. have these programs, and every state should do this. Studies find that they decrease DUI deaths by about 15%. And that's just one measure of how they help. Now, what if they have someone else blow into the breathalyzer like their passenger? That actually is a problem, but it's not terribly widespread, as I just said. Otherwise, the states that have this wouldn't have big reductions in DUI deaths. That makes sense because no passenger is going to be, I'm sober, but you're drunk. Let me blow in it and you drive. Yeah, (laughs) I guess that's not going to happen. By the way, this decrease in DUI deaths, that's just one measure of how these laws help. A study by the California DMV found that ignition interlocks are a whopping 74% more effective at preventing first-time offenders from becoming repeat offenders than is license suspension, you know, the standard old-style way of dealing with this. Taking people's license away has all kinds of other problems that it creates, like they can't get to work very easily, for example. Well, I think another thing with taking a license away is a lot of people are going to drive anyway. That's right. This way, they can't start the car, right? Let me ask you, Alonzo, you've been sober for a while, right? Quite a long time. Why would this work? Why would this be so much more effective than just license suspension? Well, because if someone's going to drink, they're going to drink. And I'm talking about someone who is an alcoholic. They're probably a partier also. They're going to drink no matter what. But if they can't start the car, they're going to find another way to get back and forth to the bar. If people who are listening to this want to help... Find out if your state-selected officials need a little more nudge from you, right? How do you do that? Just go to mad.org. That's M-A and two Ds. It stands for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, one of the most effective organizations ever created when it comes to reducing dangers from something that we really should fear. Thanks largely to MAD's efforts, the number of deaths from drunk driving has been cut in half over the past few decades. If some of the things that they're now advocating that should also be put into effect were put into effect, that number could easily be cut much farther, maybe even half again. I'm going to ask you something, Barry. What about motorcycles? Well, almost a third of motorcycle riders who die in accidents are drunk. That's about 1,700 deaths a year. Yeah, that's sad but true because there's definitely a population of riders 
who go to the bar. They even call it, you know, bar hopping on the bikes. So it's a bad idea and it's too bad. Barry, fear of drunk drivers? Definitely. Well, we're almost out of time, but every week Barry and his crack research team dig for a story that has gone viral, one that is so ridiculously outrageous that it sounds too stupid to be true. And remember, we're playing true or false here. All right, here we go. Here's the headline. Did Kellogg's release ranch-flavored Pop-Tarts? I hate to imagine it, but I'm going to go with true. All right, here's the story. On November 20th, Pop-Tarts' official Twitter account retweeted a tweet from an Oklahoma resident who wrote, You ain't from Oklahoma if you don't dip your Pop-Tarts in ranch dressing. The tweet was accompanied by a picture of a half-eaten Pop-Tart being dunked into a ramekin filled with Hidden Valley Ranch. So, Pop-Tarts jokingly wrote in response to the original tweet, This is just disrespectful. But despite condemning the Oklahomans' use of Pop-Tarts, the tweet grabbed national attention. The likes and the retweets, they just shot through the roof. So flash forward to earlier this month, the press photo for a new Pop-Tart goes viral. And can you guess what it was, Alonzo? Ranch-flavored Pop-Tart. Exactly. That is horrible. Can they please only sell those in Oklahoma (laughs) so that no one else accidentally eats one? Okay. I'm hearing all this, Barry, but I need to know, is this actually true or is this fake news? All right. Here's the reality. Despite the press release looking like an official Pop-Tarts announcement, this was fake news. The image was created by an account called at Pop-Tart-A-Day, a social media account that aims to post a new flavor Pop-Tart every day. They posted this one with the caption, Nothing hits the spot more than a warm, late-night Hidden Valley Ranch Pop-Tart. People retweeted, screenshot, and shared the images with friends and family who might not know where it came from. That's how this confused a lot of people. I don't know about confused, but definitely grossed out. Well, Alonzo, this one has been officially debunked, so fear not. You, you've you just ruined Pop-Tarts for me forever, so thank you for that, Barry. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Happily, I lose again. Today is gonna be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me. If you like what you heard, help. Even if you hated what you heard, hit the subscribe button and tune in every week. Give us a five-star review to help us rise on the charts. And as always, if you hear news stories that make your hair stand on end or they sound like someone is trying to fill you with fear, send them to us at fearnotofficial.com or tweet us at fearnotofficial. And we'll see if we can uh, find the truth. Let us know what you're scared of. Fear Not is a Stone & Company Entertainment production hosted by Alonzo Bowden and Dr. Barry Glasner, executive produced by Scott A. Stone, produced and edited by Adam Everest, written by Scott A. Stone, Barry Glasner, and Adam Everest. Alonzo writes stuff, too. Don't believe him. Our sound engineer is David I. Legal Beagles, Loeb and Loeb. Crack accountants are 10-key accounting. Special thanks to Gary Brown, Betsy Amster, and Adam's imaginary girlfriend.